Wonderful to see all of you. It's a warm welcome to guests at the third Walter Stibbs lecture uh, to be delivered by Professor Natalie Battaglia from NASA Ames. This is an event that's supported by Sydney Ideas, as you saw from that brief uh, introduction. So before we begin proceedings, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, um, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our knowledge within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever with, with the, um, uh, within the Aboriginal custodianship of, of country. So the format this evening will be a lecture by, by Natalie, one of the best you'll ever hear or see. Um, big pressure for you. I've seen you in the US. It's magnificent. And there'll be a generous amount of time for questions at the end. So I think probably, with regard to how the videos are playing, it's probably best that we keep our questions uh, until the end. There'll be lots of time for that, half an hour or so. So the lecture series uh, is thanks to a generous donation to the School of Physics, specifically to the Astronomy Group, CIFA, and CASTRO, the Centre of Excellence, from Mrs. Margaret Stibbs, in memory of her husband, uh, to acknowledge a family association with the university going back to the 1880s, long time. It's a great pleasure to have uh, Walter and Margaret's daughter here, Helen, uh, in, in the front row, and uh, hopefully uh, you'll, you'll be amazed, as your father would have been, by what, uh, what you see, because uh, he was, of course, an expert in stars. Professor Walter Stibbs was a distinguished international researcher best known for his contributions to stellar astrophysics, for his scientific leadership, and for his outstanding record of mentoring students and, and young researchers. I also remember a very keen marathon runner. It seemed to synchronize with many of his conferences around the world. So they say all good things come to those who wait. Natalie was, in fact, uh, our idea for the inaugural speaker some years ago, but unfortunately, uh, she was overwhelmed with five children, four in human form and one the Kepler satellite. So uh, you're going to hear about the, just the, one of those four, uh, five children tonight. Natalie got her degree at Berkeley, got her master's in Brazil, PhD from UC Santa Cruz, which is a very famous school in the US for astronomy, and then was a professor at San Jose State University. But then she was inveigled back to NASA because they wanted someone truly competent to run one of their most exciting missions, which is where she's been ever since. Natalie is an absolute star of the firmament of US scientists, very well published, very well cited. She's mission scientist for the Kepler mission, which has been one of the most successful missions in NASA history. She's winner of the NASA, uh, sorry, the NASA Public Service Medal. And she's on the NASA leadership team for a new mission to search for life beyond the solar system. Quite an amazing prospect. Professor Battaglia has had a fantastic run with the Kepler satellite, as you'll see. They've got something close to 5,000 candidates now for planets, of which 20% have been confirmed already. And Natalie famously discovered the first of the Kepler rocky planets, Kepler 10b. And one can only wonder if our descendants will one day be heading off in that direction, who knows. So without further ado, I give you Natalie Battaglia speaking on a planet for Goldilocks. Thank you very much.
Thank you so much for that lovely introduction. How's the volume? Is it okay? Um, it is lovely to be here. It's really wonderful to be here. Um, so thank you for the invitation, and thank you so much to the Stibbs family for endowing this lectureship that brought me here. Um, a Planet for Goldilocks is the talk, is the title. Not too hot, not too cold, reads the prescription for a world uh, that's just right for life as we know it. And agencies worldwide, not just government agencies, but also private and corporations even, uh, the private and public sector, are investing resources into the search for life, largely as a result of the work that's been done over the last 20 years. And a big portion of that is due to NASA's Kepler mission. So I will tell you some of the highlights of that mission in terms of finding planets, uh, orbiting stars outside of our solar system. We call those exoplanets. And we'll see just how close we've come to the search for life uh, beyond Earth and what the next things are to look forward to. Right? There are really three pathways for finding evidence of life beyond Earth. Uh, first, we might look here at home in our own solar system. Uh, you know, all of the worlds that we've looked at so far look to be devoid of life, uh, but who knows, maybe in sub some subterranean uh, cave on Mars, maybe life is lurking, maybe there is life lurking in the subsurface oceans on the satellites of uh, Jupiter or, or Saturn, as is depicted here in the upper left, you see the geysers emanating from underneath the uh, ice-covered surface of the satellite Enceladus, one of Saturn's satellites, um, indicative of a liquid ocean underneath that ice. Um, and we think that where there is water, there is life, uh, as long as there's enough energy. So maybe there's life there. So solar system exploration is certainly one of the paths forward. Uh, another path forward is looking for evidence of technological signals that can't be explained by normal astrophysics. And these are the infamous SETI searches. Um, they've typically been in the radio, listening for, at, at, at radio frequencies uh, for signals that might be indicative of some kind of technology, some kind of intelligent life out in the universe. Um, this search has had a resurgence lately. Uh, there have been some investments by the private sector, various philanthropists, one in particular in the Silicon Valley, has donated a lot of money to this search. Um, and so these are steady searches as represented there on the right by the Allen Telescope Array in Northern California. But the third path forward for searching of evidence of life beyond Earth really opened up about 20 years ago. 20 years ago, last October, with the discovery of the first planet orbiting another star more or less like our own sun. And so here you see on the, on the slide an artist's rendering of that planet. Um, 51 Pegasus B, Pegasi B is the name of this planet. Um, and it's very unusual, and it really surprised us when we had this first discovery, because this is a planet the size of Jupiter orbiting many tens of times closer to its star than Mercury is to our own sun in our solar system. And, and this just changed everything that we thought about planetary systems. In our own solar system, you've got the small rocky stuff inside, and you've got the big giants, gas giants, in the outer orbits. And here you had a Jupiter orbiting with an orbital period of something like three days around its parent star, 
very, very close to the central star. So we had to rethink how planetary systems form, and it really opened our eyes to the diversity that might be out there in nature. Um, it also invigorated the search for more planets. We were tantalizingly close uh, to, to, to thinking about the search for planets more like Earth. But how are we going to do it was the big question. And what do we mean by this Goldilocks planet? What is a planet like Earth? Well, we have to define that very broadly because there's a limit right now to what we can measure. So when I talk about just right worlds, I'm really talking about just right worlds in terms of two variables, the size and maybe the temperature or how much energy the planet is receiving. So if a planet is too tiny, like Mars or Mercury, it has trouble holding on to an atmosphere, and an atmosphere is important for creating a biosphere. If the planet is too large, it very efficiently globs on a lot of the hydrogen and helium, which are the most abundant elements in the universe, creating the gaseous envelopes like Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. Right? So size seems to be important. Um, and, and as I've already alluded to, we're looking for planets that could potentially harbor liquid water or let, allow liquid water to pool on the surface. Why? Why is water the key? Why not oxygen? Why not nitrogen? Why not, you know, we can think of lots of things that life requires, as we know it, um, for sustenance. Um, but the thing is that life here on planet Earth is extremely diverse. It's also very prolific. It seems to be that no matter what niche, we can go to the most extreme environments on Earth and uh, find lots of different creatures. Some of them don't require oxygen. Some of them don't require sunlight. right? Um, but what all of these creatures on planet Earth have in common is that they are carbon-based. And carbon-based chemistry, as we understand it, requires liquid water as the solvent for facilitating the reactions like metabolism. right? So water seems to be a common, uh, a common element uh, for life on planet Earth. So we're going to start with that. Um, and so we're looking for planets that aren't so close to their parent stars that water all boils away. We're not looking for planets that are so far from their parent stars that water stays locked up in a frozen state. And therein lies this idea of the Goldilocks zone, or kind of the sweet spot where the energies at least do not preclude the existence of water. Okay? So those are the things that we are measuring. Now, this first planet that I told you about, 51 Peg B, uh, was discovered by a method called the Doppler method, or radial velocity method. And the Doppler method makes use of the fact that planets, yes, they orbit their stars. But what many people don't realize is that, that the star orbits the planet as well. And here's a cartoon illustrating that. Um, boy, that's a fast planet. <laughs> so, in fact, what's going on here is that the planet and the star are both orbiting around their common center of mass. So, if you imagine having two balls, one really big and heavy and one really tiny, and they're connected by a rod, and you were to balance that rod on your finger, you're going to put your finger close to the big heavy ball, right? And that represents the star. That's the fulcrum, and that's the point about which these planets are orbiting. So the planet accelerates a lot, the star accelerates just a little bit, um, but that tiny wobble you see is what we can measure by catching starlight, spreading it out into a spectrum, and watching these features slosh back and forth in color space. 
Uh, this is the Doppler effect. The problem is that this Doppler effect, uh, right now with the instruments we have at hand, the Doppler effect can measure velocities down to like a walking speed, like one meter per second or so. Okay, But a Earth-Sun analog, that is an Earth-sized planet out at a one-year orbital period, that's going to have the speed of more like, a, more like a ladybug crawling on the ground, centimeters per second. All right? And we don't right now, at least, have the technology to measure such a tiny wobble of that parent star. So we need a different technique. The technique um, of transit photometry was proposed in the 1980s. And transit photometry works uh, like this. You measure the brightness of a star very accurately. And in fact, you do that for lots of stars. And you hope that in this sample of stars, some of them will have planets whose orbits are aligned just so, so that the planet crosses right between the disk of the star and your telescope. All planets orbiting luminous orbs are constantly casting a shadow out into the galaxy. And in this geometry, that shadow is going to sweep across the face of your telescope. Your telescope perceives that as a momentary dimming of light. The amount of dimming of light is proportional to the size of the disk that blocks the light, the planet. And if it's orbiting its star, it's going to happen once every orbital period. So you can measure that clockwork. You can get the orbital period. And Johannes Kepler told us in the 1600s that that orbital period is directly related to the separation between the star and the planet. And if you know how far away the planet is, just like standing next to a campfire, you know how much energy you're going to be receiving and whether or not it's in the Goldilocks zone. Size and the amount of energy, right? So this method, as I said, it was proposed in the 1980s, but it wasn't until the year 2001, end of 2000, uh, beginning of 2001, that NASA finally gave the green light for us to go ahead with this method on a space telescope called Kepler. That, that that's, uh, spacecraft is depicted there in the lower left-hand corner by a, some, a little cartoon. It's about a one-meter telescope, so it's not too big. It's a space-based telescope because we need very exquisite precision in order to see planets the size of an Earth. What you see here in the cartoon, this green trace you know, of brightness as a function of time that then dims and then comes back up, that's a very glaringly obvious signal there in the cartoon, at least. Um, but we're what we're trying to measure is a change in brightness that's just one part per 10,000. Very, very tiny. Um, the analogy that we like to give is to imagine the very, very tallest skyscraper you've ever seen. I'm not even, do they have like an 80-story skyscraper in Sydney? Does that exist? 80, about 80 floors? You can imagine that, maybe New York City or Chicago, um, Dubai. So imagine one of those buildings, about 80 stories high, and it's nighttime, and all of the windows are open and the lights are on in every single room. Okay? And then one person goes to one of the windows and lowers the blinds by about a centimeter. That's the change in brightness that we have to measure um, for an Earth-sized planet orbiting a sun-like star. Okay? Um, so we have to do that in space 
Um, and we are doing it with the Kepler spacecraft that was launched in 2009. It's still flying. It's still taking data. Um, but the observations mostly I'm going to tell you about were based on the first four years of operations, um, which was an experiment to answer one very simple question. What is the fraction of stars in the galaxy that harbor potentially habitable Earth-sized planets? That is, planets about the size of Earth and that orbit in this Goldilocks zone. Okay, so it's kind of a, it's kind of a census of sorts, right? Kind of like calling up a thousand people and asking who they're going to vote for in the election with maybe a better outcome. <laughs> okay. Um, so I want to show you in the very first slide what Kepler has found in that four years of staring at one patch of sky, uh, looking at about 200,000 stars simultaneously with this instrument, taking a brightness measurement of all 200,000 stars once every 30 minutes for four years without blinking. Okay? And the way I'm going to show you these results is with a scatter plot. And the scatter plot has on the y-axis, it has the radius of the planet. Remember the, the size of the planet. And on the x-axis, it has the other measurable, the other observable, which is the orbital period. Okay? And so I'm going to start this graphic. Um, it's animated by year, showing all of the different planet discoveries as they rolled in. First, the planet discoveries accepting Kepler's. So we have points that are appearing in this diagram at different sizes. We've got some blue points that are found by the Doppler method. As I said, the very first one was 51 Pegasus B, Pegasi B. The pink points are appearing on the left. Those were actually planet discoveries with the transit method from ground-based telescopes, tiny ground-based telescopes, that were capable of finding giant planets. And so as the years go by, you see more and more planets. You start to see some patterns. First of all, you notice that about 85% of the points lie above the Neptune line. So most of the planets are kind of giant planets, right? Tiny numbers below. You see kind of a swarm of points over at long period Jupiter-sized planets. And you see this curious pink swarm of points over on the left. So this is what the scene looks like in terms of planetary discoveries, um, mostly from the ground, some space-based uh, discoveries like from the European Kuro mission. So after four years of staring at one patch of sky that's about the size of my hand held at arm's length near the constellation of Cygnus and Lyra, a summer constellation in the northern hemisphere, um, here are the yellow points that we can add to this diagram. Uh, as Josh already mentioned, we've got something like 4,500, nearly 5,000 uh, planets that Kepler has discovered through this transit method. But what's remarkable about this sample is that now 85% of the known planets to humans are smaller than Neptune. So our view of the galaxy has completely changed, right? This veil has been lifted with this new piece of technology. Now we see the galaxy as it really is, at least down to about Earth sizes and orbital periods out to about one year. So the statistics I'm going to tell you about are about planets orbiting kind of at an Earth distance inward. So we're talking about the inner regions of a planetary system. So now I'm going to take this and I'm going to add up all of the points 
in different radius bins, and I'm going to make a bar chart. Um, so it's the same data, but I'm plotting it in a different way. This is what that bar chart looks like. So for different planet sizes represented on the x-axis, what are the number of discoveries that we have? And these are the planets that are between like one orbital periods of one day and about 300 days. And what I think is remarkable about this diagram is that the most common planet Kepler has found is a kind of planet we don't even have in our own solar system. It's these, literally the gray area in between, the rocky stuff on the left represented by brown, and the gas giant stuff on the right represented by blue. You've got this gray area in between where most of our discoveries lie. And we don't have planets in our solar system like that. We've got the tiny little rocky terrestrial things, we've got the big gaseous things, and we've got nothing in between. Unless planet nine plays out, but that's another subject. <laughs> <clears throat> All right, so before we talk about statistics, I want to just touch upon uh, a little, give you a feel for this great diversity of, of planets that, that, nature, that nature shows us. Um, and let's just start with one of this, uh, the planets from this gray area in between um, and what we have found about them. Here is an example. Its name is Kepler-138d. Um, again, these are artist renderings. We don't actually have pictures or pretty images of these planets. All we measure are these brightnesses. So we have to imagine what they look like. Um, but Kepler-138d is about 70% larger than Earth in terms of radius, but it's exactly the same mass as Earth. And what that means is if you take mass divided by volume, you can get an idea of the density of the planet. And this means that this planet is very puffy. It's a very low-density planet, kind of like Uranus and Neptune are. Um, and so we affectionately call it the beer-belly Earth. And so these super, kind of super-Earth or sub-Neptune planets, that gray area in between, seem to have these kinds of characteristics. They seem to have hydrogen, helium-rich molecules forming an envelope around them. Uh, some people have speculated that maybe there is such a thing as a water world, a world completely covered by um, oceans in that, in that size range. Another kind of planet I think is very interesting um, is a planet that we know is rocky. This is a class of planets represented by this animation. These are rocky planets orbiting like 30 times closer to their star than Mercury is to our own sun, so that the star-facing side is just tremendously hot. The temperatures there are hotter than that required to melt iron. Uh, these planets actually have an entire hemisphere, therefore, that is an ocean, but it is not an ocean of water, it's an ocean of, of molten rock, right? We call these lava worlds, um, and we can uh, imagine what, they're, what they uh, might be like, how they disintegrate, how they are losing, evaporating uh, silicates, for example, off of the surfaces. Now, how do we know all of this about these planets? Well, we've got the Kepler data that's depicted there on the left. Every tiny white point you see is a brightness measurement, and you can see that dimming of light. Uh, the amount of dimming tells us that this world is about 1.4 times the size of the Earth, so it's about 40% larger. And for this particular object, we also got the Doppler wobble. 
And we could get that because it's orbiting so close to its star. It's orbiting so close to its star that the gravitational tug is pretty high. So that wobble motion is a couple meters per second. And we have the, we have the technology to measure that. So those measurements tell us the mass. It's about four and a half times the mass of the Earth. Given that and the radius, we get the density, and we find that the density of this thing is exactly consistent with the density of uh, an Earth admixture. So you take everything that the Earth is made out of and you scale it up to something that's four times, basically quadruple the recipe, and you would get this radius, right? So we know that this is a rocky world. And we know its temperature because we know the temperature of the star. Now, we can take this and scale it up. We've got planets like this that are orbiting even closer to their star, and they are literally disintegrating before our eyes. So this example, Kik 12557548, is a disintegrating planet. How do we know that? Well, because of the way that the dimming of light occurs. It's not nice and symmetric like you saw before for Kepler-10b, the lava world. It has an asymmetry to it, indicative of this kind of comet-like tail that's emanating from it as a result of this disintegration. And here's what that data looks like. You see it has a sharp drop and then a shallow increase back up to normal. So that asymmetry is what's indicative of the cometary tail that's telling us that it's disintegrating. Um, other planets, uh, Kepler proved that George Lucas was right. George Lucas hypothesized that planets could orbit two stars, and indeed they do. Kepler has found many of these things. Um, so if you were standing on one of these planets and you look up into the sky, you would see not one star rising in the east and setting in the west, but two. And in this case, uh, George got the, he got the sizes of the stars wrong. But we'll, we'll give him a pass on that. Um, and so we, we know this. Again, here's the Kepler data. On the top panel, it's, it's just the brightness measurements as a function of time. You've got little uh, arrows and you've got lines that are colored. So every blue arrow points to a blue drop in brightness. It comes up, then you've got a tiny yellow one, and you can keep going. It goes blue, yellow, blue, yellow, blue, yellow. That's not the planet signal. That's actually the dimming of light periodic dimming of light that happens by way of the two stars orbiting and eclipsing one another. All right? And then in between, scattered, you've got green and red. That's the signal, the tinier dimming of light that's happening due to the planet as it goes around both of those stars at once. So not only do you have these two stars going across your sky, but they're constantly swapping places in kind of a, a pas de deux, if you will. So these are circumbinary planets. Um, a final, two, two final things I want to mention about the diversity of planets. Um, this is a little clockwork animation showing that many of Kepler's discoveries have not just one sequence of periodic dimmings of light, but multiple sequences of, of dimmings of light, indicative of multiple planets. And what we have found that there's a new kind of architecture of planetary system that actually surprised us. We know, for example, that the solar system's planets are in a, they have coplanar orbits, right? Kind of like a pancake. They're all orbiting on the same plane. But if the solar system planets are like a pancake, these things are more like a crepe. They are exquisitely flat. 
They're very compact. In some cases, you can have upwards of three, four planets that are orbiting within, like, Venus in our own solar system, even five. One system has five planets orbiting within what would be Venus in our, in our solar system. These are called compact multis, and they seem to represent a very distinct and, and unique architecture, a different architecture than the solar system. Okay, but what Kepler is really looking for, as I said, are these Goldilocks planets. So how many of the 4,500 things have we found that could possibly be the right size and the right temperature? Here's what that sample looks like. So what you're seeing here, this is another scatter plot, but now on the y-axis I have a measure of star temperature, like how hot is the central star? Our own sun would be like the middle yellow one. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It would be the top yellow one. Our sun is 5,800 degrees on its surface. Okay? But some stars are less massive than that, like what we call the K-type stars are the middle type, or the M-type stars, which are even less massive still. And that would be the red ones on the bottom, the kind of orangish ones. So the solar system planets, Venus, Earth, and Mars there, are all lined up horizontally with the Sun, which is a G-type star at 5,800 degrees. And Earth and Mars actually lie within what we call the Goldilocks zone, because plotted on the x-axis is the amount of energy that the planet is receiving. So even Mars is in the Goldilocks zone in our solar system, but yet Mars doesn't have life. That's because Mars is too small. It doesn't hold on to an atmosphere very well. But if you had a planet the size of Earth and you put it at Mars' orbit, then it would hold on to an atmosphere more easily and perhaps have the temperatures that you need for life. So this is like the exoplanet hall of fame that you're looking at here. Every point in that green zone is a planet smaller than twice the size of Earth uh, with the right kind of temperature characteristics. And so we are going to do statistics. Remember, we're doing a census. We want to know, based on these discoveries, what is the fraction of stars in the galaxy that have these kinds of planets. Um, one of these, um, just show you quickly, is Kepler-452b. Um, some people say it's the exoplanet most like Earth. I don't know if that's actually true. There are some really close contenders, in my opinion. Um, but it is interesting because it is... Uh, a little bit bigger, you see the Earth and the Sun on the left side of this split screen, and you see Kepler-452, and it's a star on the right-hand side. The star in the middle is almost exactly the same um, as our own Sun, very similar sizes and temperatures. They're both G2-type stars. Um, Kepler-452b is a little bit bigger. It's about 60% the size of of Earth, but it's in a very similar orbit, 385 days compared to 365. So this is a very interesting target. Okay, but on to the statistics. So here is a representation of the Milky Way galaxy, and that yellow cone that you see is the region of search space of Kepler. So all the planets we find are kind of in this yellow cone, rather along a spiral arm of our Milky Way galaxy. And so based on the discoveries that we have there, we can plot this bar graph, which you've already seen. I've changed the y-axis a little bit to represent the fraction of discoveries 
in that size range. So for example, um, the Earth-sized planets in that brown bar, about 17 or 18 uh, percent of the planets we detect are in that size range. Now what I want to do is I want to correct the discovery space and, and make it into an actual intrinsic population in the galaxy, just like you would if you were doing a census on the phone. You would have to correct for your biases, right? And there's lots of biases here. Remember, I told you that we're looking, we're using the transit method, right? So I can only find planets around, uh, around stars that have uh, planetary orbits which are aligned with my telescope. The probability of that happening is really tiny. It's like a half of a percent. That means for every one of those planets I found, there's 200 others that aren't in that right geometry. So I have to make that correction, right? Um, so I do that, and I change this diagram into an intrinsic population. And this is what the histogram does. So it pumps up. Let me just go back and forth. It pumps up that brown bar. The brown bar becomes more important because those are the hardest planets to find. Right? I didn't have very good sensitivity to those. That's a bias I need to correct for. All right? So this is just converting the observed population into an intrinsic population. But what does this all mean? Well, if that brown bar is something like 30%, the, the, the average number of planets per star is 0.3. There are 400 or so billion stars in our galaxy. This means that the number of planets in our galaxy is, is in the billions, is in the tens of billions. This work means that when you look up in the sky, every star out there has at least one planet, probably more. All right? So in terms of habitable planets, now I'm going to ask the question, all right, given these statistics, where in the galaxy is the nearest potentially habitable Earth-sized planet? Like, how far do I have to actually go out in order to find one of these? And for this, we're going to do a thought experiment. We're going to take the galaxy. Here's a schematic of the Milky Way galaxy. And we're going to shrink, no, not shrink. We're going to expand Australia to the size of the galaxy. Okay? And we're going to stand there on the east southeast coast, here we are in Sydney, and we turn to the west and we look out across the continent and we ask ourselves the question, where is the nearest potentially habitable planet likely to be? And the answer is uh, about at the 7-Eleven, right there on the corner. <laughs> about a quarter of a mile away, 500 meters or so. Very close. The number of potentially habitable planets in the galaxy is staggering, staggeringly high. We don't have to go very far to see one. That is, turns out to be something like 10 light years away. All right? It's not the nearest star at 4 point something light years, but it's pretty darn close. Um, so just another perspective. Here's that yellow cone again. Can you see the red dot in the middle of the crosshairs? That tiny red dot? That's about 30 light years in size. This is all the known stars within 30 light years. So every point actually represents a star that we know about. Most of them are the red stars, the very low mass cool stars that were at the bottom of my habitable zone plot. So the nearest potentially habitable planet is more or less within that inner circle. But it's probably orbiting a cool M-type star. If I want to find at least one 
potentially habitable planet orbiting a star like our own sun, if I think that's important, then I will need to look further because in this 30 light year sphere, there are only 20 stars like our own sun. So I will have to look a little bit further. Well, I can probably find one such planet according to the statistics in that entire sphere. But if I'm looking for life, I'm going to want to find many more of them because I don't know how, what fraction of planets in the habitable zone are actually habitable environments. I'm guessing that fraction is going to be even smaller. Okay, so in the last 20 years, we've made great progress. We've gone from these hot Jupiter-sized planets to planets like Kepler-452b, and we have uh, established more or less, we're still working on it, we've got another year to get a final answer, but we've more or less established the fraction of potentially habitable planets in the galaxy, or the fraction of stars that have such planets. Now in the, in the final 20 minutes, I'd like to talk a little bit about the future. Like, where are we going with this? I contend that these results have opened up a pathway for finding evidence of life beyond Earth. That goal, to me, seems very tangible. I believe that that will happen. Uh, we will find evidence of at least a living world, perhaps microbial life, within, let's say, 30 years would be my guess. So I'm kind of old. Maybe that's not my lifetime, but maybe the lifetime of my, of my children or your children. So let's look uh, at NASA's portfolio for exoplanet science. Um, this is what its portfolio of missions looks like. So I've been describing to you the Kepler spacecraft, which is kind of third up from the bottom. Um, there are several missions that are either already being planned and built or are um, kind of on the designing board. Um, so I'll say a little bit about a mission called TESS. JWST stands for the James Webb Space Telescope, which is the successor to the Hubble Space Telescope. It'll launch next, uh, in 2018. Um, there's a mission called WFIRST, which will, it's already in, in formulation. Uh, money is starting to flow to that mission. It'll start to flow in earnest as soon as JWST launches in 2018 with a scheduled completion date of 2025. And then kind of grayed out there is something called the New Worlds Telescope or Louvoir or the Habitable Exoplanet Imager. It has kind of many names right now because it doesn't actually exist yet. Um, but it is in the concept phase. Um, and this is our life finder. So I will end talking about that one. Okay, but first uh, let's look at these two, TESS and JWST. TESS is a kind of a Kepler 2.0. It's going to do almost the same thing. It's going to find planets using the transit method, okay? Um, but it's going to do so looking at the entire sky and focusing on planets that are very nearby. Um, and the reason that it's focusing on nearby worlds is because it wants to find transiting planets that can be well characterized and studied. Whereas Kepler was looking kind of out to 3,000 light years in one single space in order to do a statistical survey, TESS wants to find all the nearby things that we can get really good precision on and do lots of follow-up observations on and understand those planets. So one of the things that TESS wants to do is find planets that can be subjected to something called transmission spectroscopy. So here's one of these transiting planets 
And the kind of white fuzzy halo that you see in this artist's rendering is supposed to represent the atmosphere of that planet. Okay? And because this planet is transiting right in front of the disk of the star, you see that the starlight is going to actually be filtering through the atmosphere. Right? And when it does that, the atmosphere is going to leave a chemical fingerprint on the light. So if we can catch that light, and again, we can spread it out into a spectrum and examine the energy that's coming to our telescope at all of these different colors, we can look at those chemical signatures. Um, so again, here was the Kepler search space, this yellow cone of light, um, but it only catches one handprint on the sky, which is just 0.25%. Um, Tess is going to look at nearby things, maybe out to 200 light years, but you can see in that little intersection, see the little yellow cone that is captured inside the blue search space of Tess. Those, that's the only area of nearby planets that Kepler has access to. But Tess is going to do this all over the sky and is going to see lots of yellow slices all around, um, all around us. So again, it's looking at these transiting planets, trying to find those for which the starlight will filter through the atmosphere. On the orange plot there in the bottom right, you see an example of what that spectrum might look like as a graphical representation. It's basically a plot of how much energy we're receiving in our telescope at every color. And sometimes that energy drops down, for example, where there is water and methane leaving its chemical fingerprint on the light. You measure that because there's less energy at those colors indicative of the presence of water and methane in that atmosphere. Right? So now we can start to understand what these atmospheres are actually made out of. When we look at something like a sub-Neptune planet, one of these strange worlds that we don't even have in our own solar system, if we can look at the spectral fingerprints in the atmosphere, we'll start to understand if it is an ocean, a water world, or a super-Earth that's rocky, or whatever. We'll start to understand that by looking at the atmosphere. Um, I wanted to mention that the spacecraft represented there on the right is some generic spacecraft, uh, but it's actually supposed to represent the James Webb Space Telescope, because this is the big telescope that's going to do this for the TESS exoplanets, okay? And I just wanted to mention that the James Webb Space Telescope is being assembled right now uh, in the clean room at Goddard Space Flight Center in Baltimore, Maryland, um, and there's a webcam, so you can watch that happening in real time. Um, and so I took a screenshot of it yesterday, and it's pretty exciting because all of the mirror covers were taken off. And so we can see the fully assembled James Webb Space Telescope in the clean room with the mirror covers off. And this is what it looked like yesterday. The mirror of James Webb, um, each segment, is, they're kind of hexagonal, I guess. One, two, three, yeah, hex. And, and they're gold, but they're highly reflective. If you look at the structure in the middle, can you see that it's, it's being reflected off of the surface, the gold surface? It's a highly reflective surface. Um, those mirror segments are made out of beryllium, and they are actually coated with gold. Um, and this gives it very good performance in the infrared. So this is the instrument that's going to understand and characterize the atmospheres of some of these planets. Um, the difficulty is 
that the cartoon I showed you with that white glowing atmosphere with that sunlight filtering through um, was not exactly the atmosphere of an Earth-like planet. This is an actual image of a planet, a terrestrial planet in our solar system transiting in front of a star, which is our sun. This is Venus. This is the transit of Venus that happened, I think it was in 2012, captured by the Hinode spacecraft, Japanese spacecraft. Um, and I'll just draw your attention to the very thin yellow band hugging the planet. You can see it in the upper left most clearly against the darkness of space. That's the atmosphere. Okay, It's a very tiny, maybe five-kilometer scale height atmosphere. So even for James Webb Space Telescope, the biggest telescope we'll have ever put out into space, um, it's not going to be possible, unfortunately, to characterize the atmosphere of a Earth-sized planet because of the tiny scale height. It's going to be too difficult. That area is just too small. It'll knock them out of the park for the Neptunes, for example, maybe even some sub-Neptunes. There might be a very nearby uh, super-Earth-ish planet. Pro probably not a super-Earth. Sub-Neptunes, yes, but not even super-Earths. Um, but imagine that we could catch light, not just the light coming from this thin band around the, around the surface on the limb, Imagine we could catch all of the light that's reflecting off of the surface of a planet, kind of like a full moon. When you see it up in the sky, and you've got all the sunlight reflecting off the entire surface, not just the band. In that way, you can get a lot more photons. And when light bounces off the surface, the properties of the surface and the atmosphere are going to leave a spectral fingerprint in the same exact way as we got for the transmission spectroscopy. All right? But in this case, we've got much more area that we can work with. Um, so what we want to do is we want to do direct imaging. We want to design an instrument that can actually get the light that's reflecting off of the surface of a, of a planet, light that's coming from the star, reflecting off the surface, spread the light out into a spectrum, do the same thing. Here is an example. This is Voyager's picture of Earth um, taken from the outer reaches of the solar system. Um, the famous pale blue dot. The very, very tiny white, kind of looks white dot in the middle, is an image of our own planet Earth, taken from within our own solar system. But if you can catch that light, as faint and tiny as it is, and spread that light out into a spectrum, you might very well see the indication of a living world. Literally, a living world world where life has sprung up from, from Earth itself and has had a global impact on its environment, has put oxygen into the atmosphere, for example, methane, um, who, a, a planet that is green, right, that has, that has plant life on the surface. You can see that spectroscopically if you have enough photons to measure it with. Um, so this is what we are looking for, a living world. Here's another representation of that spectrum. Here I've got the spectrum of Venus, of Mars, and of Earth. And the spectrum of Earth looks very different than the spectrum of Venus and Mars. A living world looks very different. Uh, we don't know what the diversity of living worlds is going to be, 
But it could be that we start to characterize the atmospheres of these planets and we find that living worlds are very distinct. And that's what we're hoping for. So let me end by just mentioning the New Worlds Telescope. This is the instrument that's being planned right now to do this in the future. Um, and let me demonstrate the challenge here that we're facing. Here is the Earth, a simulation of, a, of an image of Earth as seen by something like the Hubble Space Telescope from Mars. All right. Here is what that Earth would look like from Uranus. This is what it would look like from Voyager 1 at 134 astronomical units. This is what it would look like from 20,000 AU. We haven't even gotten to the nearest star yet. Um, this is what it looks like if you were kind of out at about four light years. Right? Because as you go further and further away, a star and a planet shrink off into the distance, right? They get closer and closer and closer the further and further away they are. And so the planet literally becomes lost in the glare of its parent star. In fact, the star is 10 billion times brighter than the reflected light off of that planet. And they're separated, even for the nearest star, they would be separated by two parts per 10,000 of one degree. So that's the technical challenge that we have. How are we going to accomplish this? How are we going to see this faint little thing, 10 billion times fainter than the parent star, when it's hidden in the glare like that? Well, you would do it the same way you would if you went out at, ni at, at night and you wanted to see the stars, but you've got street lights, right? What do you do? You hold up your hand and you block the street light, right? And then you can see the stars. So we're going to do the same thing. We're going to hold up a, a figurative thumb and we're going to block out the starlight and see if we can see the planets nearby. And so I have a video um, that was created by the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and I think it really highlights well why this is challenging um, and exactly how we're going to do it. I think it'll give you a good appreciation for um, the technology that's involved. Let me just say first that there are two ways we can do this. One, our, our thumb, our virtual thumb, can be an object that's put inside the optics of the telescope. So you've got the light coming in and it gets focused by, by mirrors to a focal point and in that optical path we put a tiny disc that suppresses the starlight. But there's diffraction. Light bends around corners. It's messy. You get all kinds of light bouncing all over the place that you have to care about because you're looking for signals that are 10 billion times fainter, right? And so there's a lot of different engineering that goes into that. So that's one method. The other thing we can do is put our virtual thumb as a big star shade someplace very far away from our spacecraft. So really more literally like a thumb in the sky. Okay? And this is going to be an, an object that's many meters, tens of meters in diameter, and it's going to fly tens of thousands of kilometers away in order to be tiny enough to actually block out the light. And we're going to have to do that very accurately and point these things, align these things very carefully. All right, so let's see if my volume is okay. A distant star is orbited by two planets, 
One looks similar to the Earth, the other is a gas giant. When viewed from a distance, the two planets disappear into the glare of their sun. How could we ever find these planets all the way from the Earth? By using a space telescope with a coronagraph to separate starlight from planet light. As the star's light passes through the telescope's large mirrors, it picks up small distortions. Diffraction adds concentric rings to the image we see. To reveal the planets, first a chronograph uses a mask to block much of the star's light and redirect the remaining light to the outer edges. A washer-shaped device can now block most of the rest of the star's light. Because the planet's light comes in at an angle, it misses the mask and passes through the center of the washer. But when we turn up the image signal by collecting more light, we can see that the planets are still hidden under blobs of leftover starlight. To remove these blobs, the chronograph has a special deformable mirror that can change shape by using hundreds of tiny pistons. This can correct distortions in the light beam. As the mirror deforms, the blobs of light as seen in the monitor slowly begin disappearing, finally revealing the brighter of the two planets. Afterwards, the fainter planet also comes into view. We can now see objects more than a billion times fainter than the star. And if the light from these planets is passed through a prism, we can spread it out into rainbows of color. But some colors are missing. They were absorbed by gases in each planet's atmosphere, giving us important clues about their composition. The search for life in the universe has taken a new step forward. All right, so that's the first technology. Um, as you heard, it's called a coronagraph. It's inside the optics. The second piece of technology is called a star shade. So you launch two pieces of equipment that are independent. So on the left, you see the star shade is unfurling. It has that special shape in order to get rid of the diffraction that would, that would hide the planets. We have to fly it far away so that it blocks only the tiny star in the distance, thereby revealing the planets nearby. This design, this star-shaped design, is actually a lot simpler uh, in terms of the optics. You know, you saw in that first video all the deformable mirrors and the feedback loops in order to really beat down that signal. This is a lot simpler. The problem is that the star shade has to fly far away, and every time you want to point at another star, you have to wait about a week for this thing to go someplace else, right? You've got to send it someplace else. So both of them have their advantages and disadvantages, but the technology development is already in progress for both of these methodologies. Um, I'll say that this method of blocking out the light from a central star in order to reveal planets is already being employed by ground-based uh, coronagraphs. Um, here's an example of two discoveries that were made. And, and you know, I, I look at this and I kind of see the future because I think our future discoveries are going to look a lot like this. This is when you see the first, you know, we found life. Um, the images are going to look very similar to this because you're going to see this kind of leftover blobs of light. Um, these planets that have been discovered by ground-based chronographs are very large, a couple times larger than Jupiter, for example. They're very far from their parent star. They're very hot. They're very young. These are not the kinds of planets that we're, that we're aiming for. Um, just to give you an idea of how hard this is, right now with our very best technology, we're almost getting to the point where we
we could see a Jupiter and Saturn um, orbiting a star about 30 light years away. You know, the terrestrial planets that we really want to get at, the Earth in the Goldilocks zone is inside that tiniest circle. So we have to do a lot better than this. Um, but the Kepler statistics I have already mentioned have given us a design point. If I want to find, let's say, three dozen Earth-sized planets in the habitable zone and study their atmospheres to try and find evidence of life, I would contend that I need to find at least three dozen or so, maybe 50, Earth-sized planets in the habitable zone. That means I need to look out to about 100 light years. Remember that sphere of stars within the innermost 30 light years or so um, now is just a third of that total radius. And so in order to see these signals with our best technology coronagraph or starshade, I'm going to need a 10 plus meter telescope in space. The James Webb Space Telescope that you just saw is six and a half meters. Um, so this gives you an idea of the Hubble Space Telescope on the left, the James Webb that is going to be launched in 2018, and something like the New World's Observer would be maybe 12 meters in diameter. Um, but what the engineers tell us is that we can fit a 10-meter class telescope in the current rocket fairings that we have. Above that size, and I would contend that we actually need a little bit bigger than that, um, the, the plan would be to look into launching a telescope that is not assembled. Each of these mirror segments is kind of stacked in your rocket fairing. We launch it together with humans. They fly out to their favorite orbit position for insertion, and they assemble it out there, um, and then the humans come home. So that sounds kind of science fiction-y, but this is actually what's being planned. This is what's being thought about right now. Um, for a telescope that could find evidence of life. The instrument technology is already happening. Um, what you're seeing here are simulations based on current designs in the laboratory. Um, so in the laboratory, we're, we're achieving this kind of um, performance, or, or at least on the drawing boards we are. Um, and so what you see here are simulations of what, um, like Earth and Venus on the left with a certain coronagraph design, um, in the middle one, you've got Jupiter, Earth, Venus, and Saturn, etc. So, so these are what the images are going to look like. Again, the objective here is not only to find these planets, but to collect light from them and to look for these very precious chemical fingerprints of life. Um, here represented as a uh, microscopic image of the cyanobacteria caught in the act of metabolizing its food and burping out this tiny little bubble of oxygen that we as humans depend upon for life and sustenance. Um, but life here on Earth has done this in a global way, transforming planet Earth into not just a ball of rock, but actually a truly living world. Um, in a NASA roadmap report, a technical document that was released, um, I think last year, maybe the year before, there's a quote. Um, says, is, is there life on other worlds? For the first time in human history, we've finally been able to embark on the systematic, scientific pursuit of an answer. Um, and that's happening now. So hopefully within the next 30 years or so, we'll see a cover of Time magazine maybe that looks like this. This is not a real cover. Don't go out and tell your friends um, that this is a research result. Um, but I believe that this is going to happen, and my bets are placed on about 30 or 40 years. 
So thank you very much. I'm happy to take questions. Thank you for coming. Well, I had a colleague from Harvard in the 90s who began his review talk in Seattle by saying that we pretty much knew what the universe and there wasn't much more to be discovered. So, I mean, what a travesty. Fantastic stuff. Um, we'll take some questions. Uh, thank you for the presentation. Just wondering the way you described it, uh, for life to exist on a certain planet, does the other like gas plants, do they have to be there? Like, do, does the order of the planets have to be specific? So great question. So for life to exist, you have to have giant planets. Um, you'll find scientists that, that hypothesize that that is indeed the case. In fact, uh, there's a book, I think, called Rare Earth uh, that gives a lot of different things that we think we have to have in order for life to flourish, like the existence of a moon, for example, or being in orbit about a star that is very stable in its light output. Um, I mean, you can think about all of those things, but we don't really know. I, personally, my, my gut feeling is that life is so prolific and creative that it's going to occupy every possible niche. Um, whether or not intelligent life will arise is another question. Is it probability that these things happen or there's certainty? Because, like, I mean, you, you explained how the the planets orbit on a plane, a certain plane, and for things to be so mathematically correct that, that things are harmonious, for that to exist in like the deep universe, um, like what, what are the uh, like calculations, what are the odds? What are the odds of what exactly? Uh, having of a, having that. What are the odds of having an, an edge-on system? That's something like when we look at um, a random sample of stars, I mean, the bottom line is that the spin axis of stars, and we think that the planetary orbits will be perpendicular to that, they're all oriented randomly in the galaxy. That's just related to how stars form. Um, so given the assumption that all of these spin axes are randomly oriented, uh, the probability of having a star, a planetary system, a planet like the Earth, exactly on an edge on orbit is about a half of 1%. That's why we had to look at so many stars. That's why we looked at 200,000 stars. All right, so what about some young people? Yeah. Don't be shy. There are no yeah. dumb questions. Ask whatever you like. Uh, sorry? Oh, that's, that's pretty young. There we are. A student here. We've got one here. Oh, we'll, we'll, start, we'll start there, then go to you next. I wanted to ask, um, can there be a planet that a different planet than Earth that we can live on? Could there be a different planet other than Earth that we could live on? Yeah. That's what we're trying to find out and I think the answer is going to be yes, absolutely. Will you take us there? <laughs> if I find it, will you take us there? Is that a yes? Did you say yes? Excellent. Um, you talked about, when you were talking about the possibility of the sub-Neptune-sized planets, like, 
being not necessarily rocky planets like we see, but possibly gas planets. You talked about the density of those planets, yeah. and you had a mass calculation. How did you get that mass? Like, how did you measure yeah. the mass of the planet? Uh, great question. So I did talk at one point about the density of planets. In order to have density, you need mass divided by volume. Volume is given by the radius, which we get from the transit. So then we need the mass. So we can get the mass two different ways. Well, there's a third, but two primarily. Um, one is the Doppler method that I talked about in the beginning. So if you can go to a ground-based observatory, take a spectrum of the star and see evidence of the Doppler wobble, that allows you to get the mass. But in fact, most of the masses of the planets that Kepler has discovered come from a different technique called transit timing variations. And here's the way that works. You've got these dimmings of light that occur, and they should occur like clockwork. Every orbit, at the exact same time, you should get a new one. But what we observe in many cases is that these dimmings of light, they occur a little too late, or maybe a little too quickly. They're irregular. And by looking very carefully at that timing, what we discern is that there is a dynamical interaction, there's a gravitational tug between planetary neighbors that is causing this change in the timing from the perfect periodicity. And so by measuring exactly how much too soon or how much too late the dimming of light occurs, we can then get the mass of the perturbing object and vice versa. So that's another way that we can get the masses of the objects and that allows us to get the density. There's a question over here. Yeah, uh, you talked about earlier about um, carbon-based life and finding planets with water and how life will be supported by that. What do you think is the possibility of finding life that uh, can be supported by other prospects, such as if they were reliant on nitrogen, uh, methane, or even an element that we haven't discovered before? Yeah, um, there are certainly people that are thinking about other potential pathways. Like, for example, Titan, you know, has like what, methane oceans or something like that, some kind of ethane-based uh, liquid on its surface, right? So could that serve as a solvent to facilitate chemical reactions? Um, the energetics seem to be important. I mean, maybe the answer is yes, and there are people who think that that's possible and who are pursuing that, but the energetics are complicated, right? You just don't have a lot of energy involved because it's so cold. You don't have a lot of energy involved to create diversity, right? So I don't know. I mean, again, I think that the universe is going to be more creative than we imagine uh, and more prolific than we imagine, and we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, the big challenge for us is to be able to recognize life when we see it, right? Uh, I would guess that it's not going to be as simple as taking those spectra and seeing, oh, okay, this looks exactly like, these look exactly like Venus and Mars, and this looks exactly like Earth. I'm guessing there's going to be a huge diversity there, and we're going to have to sort it all out. So we've got, a, we've got Earth scientists, planetary scientists, heliophysicists, many people across many different disciplines are trying to understand how the geology of planets would be different for different compositions and different masses, what kinds of elements are going to be outgassed, so what are the sources of gases in the atmosphere, and then what are the sinks? Right? And so how do you build up equilibrium? What might be out of equilibrium? What, what do we expect to see? You know? if, if we see a planet that has oxygen, does that automatically mean that there's life? No, we can actually think of scenarios where an atmosphere might build up an excess of, of oxygen that is not biological. 
So we have to sort all of that out and, and understand what it is we're looking at. And we're working hard to do that. Whatever you like. No such thing as dumb questions. There's a couple so, over uh, here. Uh, uh, so at the back. Youngsters, if you can think up your questions. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you, Natalie. Um, just a couple of things. Uh, firstly, in terms of improving effective resolution, because of uh, obviously with the vast distances, there can be a lot of dust and other matter with gravitational effects and things affecting uh, uh, light. Uh, so just wondering what the latest uh, uh, research and development is in that area to try and get more effective resolution of what actually gets in the lens. And secondly, um, is there any development of the idea of next generation lenses, uh, maybe using something like an electromagnetic lens? Uh, you had the little pistons uh, deforming the lens there, but if you had an electromagnetic lens with the right programming, maybe with quantum computing, you could probably get some really uh, interesting dynamic lensing happening. So just wondering if anything's happening along that line. Was that to sci-fi? There's a lot of questions. Um, let's see. Uh, so the first question is about resolution. Um, but, but you also mentioned disks or dust. I think the word you used was dust, maybe. Um, dust is something that we actually worry about. In our own solar system, there is kind of a glow along the ecliptic plane due to what we call zodiacal. It's called zodiacal emission, and it's basically due to dust that's remnant in the solar system. And if this zodiacal emission is really strong, typically in planetary systems, it could preclude us from being able to see the light of a planet. Um, so that's something we think about. We don't think it's going to be a showstopper, but, but people are thinking about it. Um, resolution uh, is related to how, how close in you can see, right? You want to resolve down very close to the, to the star. Um, and that's related to the aperture of the telescope and how well you can block out the light, how, lo how well you can get rid of the starlight. As you get closer and closer to the star, you get more and more of these little speckles that appear around the, the strell around the star. Um, so I don't know if that actually answers your question. But the second part of your question is about technology development, new detectors, and I'll just... That's not my area of expertise, but I'll just say that here at the University of Sydney, you have a world-class uh, facility that's doing that kind of technology development. So uh, Joss here can tell you all about that. I encourage you to talk to him afterwards. <laughs> uh, thank you. Uh, yeah, fantastic stuff. Uh, I've got a couple of questions, if I may. Um, the Hubble at one point was uh, visited by astronauts uh, to get a new pair of glasses. For servicing, yeah. Yeah. Um, is is WES um, going to be serviceable or need any um, top-ups uh, in no. any sense? No, WEB is not going to be serviceable. Hubble is in an Earth orbit. Uh, WEB is going to be at a Lagrangian point, uh, the L2 Lagrangian point. So... We're not right, thinking yep. it's going to be serviceable. If you talk to people like John Grunsfeld, who heads up the, who was the astronaut who actually serviced Hubble, and who headed up Space Sciences, the Science Mission Directorate at NASA, he's actually just now retiring. Um, he has, he would place his bets on uh, that it will be serviceable by time we get it to it, it at the end of its life. Um, but there is no current plan to have it be serviceable now. Serviceable. The um Another question, uh, how much data are you sort of receiving daily? And how is much what? The, uh, data in terms of um, oh. 
from, from the um, from Kepler. The and is uh, Tidmanbilla uh, NASA tracking station uh, involved in that uh, collection? Yes. The entire deep space network is involved in tracking the satellite and in telemetering down the data. Um, the data volume for Kepler is actually not that high. Uh, we take these brightness measurements once every 30 minutes of 200,000 stars over the lifetime of over the four years of the mission. Uh, I think you have some terabytes of data. It's not too terrible. The, uh, if you get two vibration signals and add them together, usually double the amplitude, and if, but if they're out of phase, they cancel each other out. Can you use that property to reduce the light from a star? I think there, were, there was some, going to be some work on that, but it was complicated in connection with the 8-metre Arizona um, binoculars. But I, I didn't hear the last part, but, but yes, I mean, what you're describing is a technique called nulling interferometry. Have they done it yet? Uh, and, and yes, that's being actively explored. Good. Yes, in fact, here in uh, Sydney, it's being explored. Yes. Very good. So, why ourselves out? Uh, here's a dumb question. The planets going around double stars, mm -hmm. I heard someone call them Tatooine worlds. Tatooine. Like in... well, because is that that's the right? Luke's... Yeah, is, that's is that right. formally what you call them? Uh, well, we called the first one Kepler 16b, which is the artist rendering that I showed you right above Luke Skywalker's home, Tatooine. He, he said it was okay if we named Kepler 16 also Tatooine. So, you have permission we to We had use... permission, yes. Okay, that's great. <laughs> Of, of all the planets that you've kind of seen and investigated, do you have any particular favorite picks for planets that oh. would be likely to contain life? Oh, goodness. <laughs> um, you saw the Exoplanet Hall of Fame. It's a very tiny, uh, tiny parameter space. Um, so Kepler-452b is interesting, but it's kind of large. It's on the large size. 60% larger than Earth. I'm guessing it could be quite different composition than, than Earth. Um, there's another one, Kepler-186f, that is very much Earth-sized, but it's orbiting an M-type star. Some people argue that when you orbit an M-type star, you've got other worries that you have to think about, like the UV emission from the star. You know, you've got a lot of stellar activity and flares and all of these e events from magnetic activity, which might not be good for life. Also, when those stars were young, they were much, much more luminous for a very long time. And people say that any planet that was in the habitable zone during that time would be completely desiccated. And so the planets we see now in the habitable zone probably couldn't have life. And there are all kinds of things like this. But all of that is just imagining, right? We don't really know. Um, in terms of favorite planets, I will mention one other class of planets that I find very interesting which are um, the planets we have found that are about the same age as the galaxy itself. That, to me, is very surprising. Um, but it turns out that the supernovae that occurred in the formation, during the formation of the galaxy actually released enough elements, enriched the interstellar material enough to provide the building blocks of planets. Um, they're going to have a slightly different composition than planets that formed during later stages, which were enriched by different types of supernovae. Um, I find that very interesting. I find it very interesting to think that there is a planet out there that is like 13, point, you know, 13 billion years old. You know, what can happen over that amount of time is, is really interesting to me. Um, and this very idea that Earth might not be the most habitable place in the galaxy, right? Maybe Earth is not the most hospitable place for life. Maybe there are other places that are even more hospitable. I'm kind of intrigued by that idea, kind of super habitability. 
Any more young students? Some of you were ducking and... Okay, here's one. Here's one of my ex. <laughs> so I understand that the technology and means that you're more likely to find bigger planets than smaller ones. But what assumptions do you make to kind of extrapolate how many smaller planets there are going to be? How do we make the bias corrections from what's observed yeah. into what's actually out there? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so the, the point is that um, we have lower sensitivity for the... It's harder to find the planets that are smaller and at longer orbital periods. And that's something that we can measure. First of all, we know how bright the star is, so we know how noisy it is, we know what kind of precision we can achieve on that star, on that planet, and we know what the depth of a transit would be or what the signal size would be that we could measure. So we can already kind of estimate what our sensitivity should be. That gets us about 90% of the way there. But then we've got other losses in efficiency. You know, for example, we have to build a pipeline, a software pipeline, we don't, we don't sit there and look at all of this data by eye. We would be doing that forever. We've got a computer algorithm which looks, is a digital signal processing algorithm that searches for events in the data that correlate well with a transit-like shape. Right? So that's all done automatically. And there's a lot of stuff that goes into that, and that process is not 100% efficient. So there might be a planet in the data that didn't come out at the end. Right? So what we do is we take our data in the front before we put it through the pipeline and we inject fake transits and we see how well we do. We inject fake transits at all different orbital periods and sizes and we measure how many come out. And that gives us a correction, a bias correction that we can apply. We call that completeness. Um, so, so those are the kinds of things that we do in order to transform the observed space into the intrinsic space. Uh, I have a question about uh, Kepler. So it was looking at this small uh, patch in the sky. Um, so how did you select this special area in the sky? Like... Well, so the, the question is, how did we select that particular patch of sky in the constellations of Cygnus and Lyra? Uh, we, we need to look at a lot of stars, right? Because, again, we've got this 0.5% probability. And so where do we have a lot of stars? In the plane of the Milky Way galaxy. Okay, so we wanted to look kind of near the plane of the Milky Way galaxy. That was one thing. The second thing is we wanted to look in a part of the sky that was accessible with our ground-based telescopes that we had access to so that we could do follow-up observations. And the telescopes we had access to were actually in the northern hemisphere. So that kind of cut half of the galactic plane out for us, and so it narrowed it down to just this one part. The third characteristic is that we couldn't... So, so let me use my hands here to make a little model. Here's the sun, and here's the spacecraft, okay? And the spacecraft is always pointing at, at one particular field of view over there at Cygnus, right? And it has to maintain that pointing as it orbits the sun, because the spacecraft is not orbiting the Earth, it's orbiting the sun. And it always has to maintain that pointing. And so what it means is, as it's orbiting, sometimes it's going to be looking at that field of view over the sun itself. So that angle can't be too small. So that's a sun avoidance angle. It has to be a certain range. And so those three constraints alone actually put, it, put us in the Cygnus Lyra region. And the rest was just kind of the doubles in the detail. We did very detailed 
modeling of star populations in the galaxy in order to optimize the planet yield, we found that it was beneficial to look, for example, slightly above the plane of the galaxy instead of right into the plane of the galaxy. Kind of like um, if you're trying to see fireflies at night or that are kind of zooming around you and the San Francisco skyline or the Sydney skyline is like right in front of you, you know, it's better to look slightly up and then you can see the fireflies. You don't have the confounding stuff behind. In this case, the confounding stuff would be the distant, luminous, giant stars that are so populous in the plane of the galaxy. Um, so those were the considerations. Yeah, so we've been able to see asymmetries in uh, comet planets. Uh, can we see that asymmetry with moons as well? I'm sorry, say the first part again? So we've been able to see asymmetries with comet planets to seeing their, their oh, tail. Oh, asymmetries in the transit, yeah. like for the disintegrating planets? Yeah, planet? with, with the brightness. So could we see asymmetries due to moons? Yeah, exactly. Oh, there are certainly people who are looking. Um, moons, rings, if the planet had rings, you might uh, see some kind of asymmetry. Um, so far, they have not yielded anything, no. Um, but they are, they are searching. It's a tough, it's a tough problem. Yeah. Um, looking into the future, if in 30 years we see that Time magazine special issue and we've found an exoplanet with an atmosphere that looks like it might sustain life, what do you imagine could be the step after that to try to find out more? Well, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, of course, it's not sufficient to find one. You want to understand the diversity of planets or of, of life, right? Um, I think, and we've already seen evidence that once you look, once you can say that there is a star there that has life on it, it's going to stimulate the research and the technology to get us there, right? Um, and these objects are going to be all the closest objects. So that kind of thing has already happened, even with Kepler's discovery so far. Did you guys hear about the um, breakthrough star shot that was announced a couple of weeks ago? There's a Silicon Valley philanthropist who's putting $100 million into designing interstellar you know, technology, working on technology for interstellar travel. He's trying, to, he's trying to get us very tiny nanosats, he calls them. Yeah, the entire spacecraft is about the size of a wafer cookie. Uh, it's very tiny, and it's going to be powered by um, uh, sails. So it's going to have lasers that with radiation pressure drive and accelerate this, these tiny spacecraft. Um, so that technology is happening. So, you know, that's just a philanthropist who's like, wow, this is really cool, we're finding planets, let's go see if there's something around Alpha Centauri. You know, I mean, that's the way it works. So I think that's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, in the film Interstellar, um, they found a habitable exoplanet orbiting a black hole. and um, at the time, I thought that was pretty silly, but I thought I might ask you if that's plausible. Uh, I, which, which one did you take issue with that you thought was silly? Which planet? Um, I think it was Miller's planet. What was it? I can't remember. Are you the one that was the, orbiting the black hole. Was it the, the ice hole. world or something? Which one was I think it? it was the ocean world. Ah, yes. With the, the huge waves. You know, I have to say, when I watched Interstellar, I, it was, was a very emotional experience for me. <laughs> I, I really related to it because here we are imagining all of these worlds, you know, lava worlds, ocean worlds, frozen worlds, all these things we've been imagining, right? So I really related to that. I could, I could see how we've got this catalog of all of these planets that we've discovered and now we're going out to find out what's there. 
Um, so, I, I mean, there were things that were, you know, marginally silly. I didn't understand the floating ice structures, tidally, whatever. I, don't, I didn't get that. Um, but I do know that they put an awful lot of thought into that movie, um, into getting the technical, tech, more or less technically, as best they could. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, can you tell us what happened uh, recently with to Kepler? Why did it shut down and come back? And yeah. is it okay? Uh, <laughs> What's <yeah>. the prognosis? <laughs> We've had our knocks. <laughs> Um, yeah, the Kepler spacecraft went into emergency mode a few weeks ago, um, shut down, turned itself off, um, but it's back up and running um, as of just a few days ago. So it's taking science data again. It looks like it was just an anomaly. Nothing is broken that we can tell. Um, we've had these kinds of anomalies in the past, although that they operated a little bit differently. So each case seems to be kind of unique, and this one is certainly no exception. Um, but it's all back up and running, working fine. Yeah. We have time for one or two quick questions before we finish. Okay. Uh, thank you. Um, can you tell us if you are looking at different things other than planets with Kepler? I'm sorry. Are, are you looking for other stuff like solar winds? Are you studying other Are we stuff? doing any other science besides looking yeah. for planets? Is that your question? Yes. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, for example, here at Sydney, we've got something called the Astroseismic Group, and astroseismology is the study of pulsating stars, stellar pulsations. Um, so, uh, oh gosh, thousands of stars uh, that Kepler has observed have the precision to see these very high-frequency pulsations. And by observing them, you can learn a lot of really interesting things, and there are people in this audience that can tell you all about it. Um, but first of all, you can get this, the properties of the stars very, very accurately, the radius, the mass. In some cases, you can get information about what's going on in the core, how the core is rotating, for example. Um, things like metallicity, composition, you can get. Uh, we're studying the galactic archaeology is this new word. You know, you look at the fundamental properties of stars and you see what's out there in the galaxy and you try and match that to stellar population synthesis um, and, and see what the structure of the galaxy is in great detail. Um, we have seen supernovae go off in the Kepler data. Um, we have witnessed the very beginnings of a super, supernova explosion. We have seen in Kepler data when the shock wave breaks out of the star surface as a supernova goes off. All of that is giving us fundamental physics and insight into these processes. I could go on and on. We've, seen, we've observed Neptune um, as, it, as it rotates. Um, planets in, in star clusters. We're, we're looking at star clusters, new star clusters, where we're, we're getting the ages of the star clusters. Um, our, our library, how, how much time do we have? Okay. <laughs> so one of the questions you didn't get, and I was hoping somebody would ask, is every now and then, when you look at these stars, you see really complicated flickering of light. And people are writing papers saying oh, that you're seeing alien spaceships. Like Cabby Star, is yeah. that what you're talking about? Are Kepler team excited <laughs> by that prospect? Uh, have you guys heard of Tabby Star? The uh, alien megastructure? <laughs> um, yeah, so we're looking at 200,000 stars with very, very exquisite precision, right? And there's a star that has what looks like dimmings of light, kind of like what you would see, maybe not with a planet transit because they're very deep, but maybe like with an eclipsing binary star, except that they're not strictly periodic 
and sometimes they're shallow and sometimes they're really deep and stars, well, they just don't change sizes like that. Um, and if it were Keplerian, if it were in orbit, it would happen regularly. So that's really weird. But even weirder still, if you think that it is a stellar companion, you go out and you observe it with this Doppler method, and you should get this whopping huge signal, you know, indicative of some gravitational thing that's there orbiting, and there's nothing. Not nothing. No Doppler signal. So that's really weird. So then people thought, well, maybe it's like this big comet, you know, swarm of comets or something, or maybe it's like precessing rings or something. You've got all this circumstellar debris that's blocking it out from time to time. Um, but in that case, you observe it in the infrared, and dust like that should be kind of glowing. You would see this excess of radiation at infrared wavelengths. Nothing. Nothing. So just kind of one by one, all of the possible explanations are just disappearing. So it still has not been solved. Some people are thinking maybe it's stellar evolution, like you're catching the star right before it starts to shed its outer layers and it's shedding them in poofs and they're blocking light. I mean, there's all kinds of different scenarios that people are imagining, but it's still a mystery. So I think that that's very exciting. Alien star shades, is it possible? What's that? Alien oh, I should say that alien megastructures is still on the list. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so thank me. Uh, do, sorry. Do thank Natalie for a wonderful Stibbs lecture. Thank you so much.